0: having the backing of a company that says you know you will have no interference, you'll make this picture as you want. Uh, the trade-off is it streams with theatrical distribution prior to that. I figure that's that's the chance we take on this particular project. you know what streaming means and how that's going to define a new form of cinema, I'm not sure. I thought for a while maybe long-form TV is cinema it's not. Mm-hmm. It simply isn't you know. It's it's a different viewing experience. You could look at three episodes, two, four, ten, you know, one, one week, a second episode, the second week. That's not it, – it, it's a different kind of thing. So there's got to be still – what has to be protected is the singular experience of experiencing a picture, ideally with an audience. Um, but there's room for so many others now and so many other ways, and there's going to be crossovers mm-hmm. completely. The value – how do you I do you say the value of a film that's like a uh, theme park film for example uh, the Marvel type pictures where where the theaters become amusement parks that's a different experience and it's like it's not even it's a, I was saying earlier it's not cinema it's something else you know whether you go for that or not but it is something else and they shouldn't be we shouldn't be invaded by it and so that that's a big issue that's a big issue and we need the theater owners to step up for that you see to allow theaters to show films that are Narrative films. A narrative film could be one long take for three hours too. You know, <laughs> it doesn't have to be everybody, and it doesn't have to be a conventional beginning, middle, and end. Uh, but anyway, if that it, that answers your question, I'm i okay. <laughs> Great, thanks. Mm. Um- <laughs> <laughs> Who to do that? Sequels suck. No
1: oh, wow. oh, come on, man. oh
2: please, please! By definition alone, they're inferior films. Is- Captain America is the star Go ahead, make my millennium
1: (laughs) Hello looters, welcome to The Movie Loot The podcast where we share the best, greatest, most entertaining and or weirdest film loot you could find My name is Carlo and we'll be sharing the loot today This is episode 75, or the very much delayed episode 75, so I very much want to jump right into the topic, but first, some promos. A couple of weeks ago, we released episode 74, The November Loot, where we shared our thoughts on everything we saw in November, while focusing a bit on 1960s Eyes Without a Face. Before that, we released episode 73, The Puerto Rican Loot, with local critic Mario Alegre, where we talk about Puerto Rican cinema. I said it before, but that episode has been doing really well and has entered our top five most downloaded episodes ever. So thanks so much for listening to that. But let's jump right into it, shall we? Our first episode of 2022 was called The Silent Loot, in which me and my friend Brian Scuttle talked about early silent films, and it was a great conversation, so now that 2022 was ending, I wanted to look at the other end of the spectrum, at the films that have been released for the new millennium. And for that, I have a great guest, founder and administrator of movieforums.com, Chris Boyer. Let's go.
2: The Millennium Loot.
1: Hello Looters, welcome to The Movie Loot. This is our last guest episode of the year, The Millennium Loot, where we will be talking about films released in the new millennium. And for that, I'm glad to be joined by a great internet friend, Chris Boyer. Glad to have you here, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Hey, Chris and I met about a year ago,
2: right? Maybe two now. Uh, Time flies pretty quickly. Uh, Or time doesn't really have any meaning anymore
1: either, (laughs) does it? Last two or three years have been like a blur. Yeah. Um, So we met. About a year ago through a movie forum called movieforums.com, where he is an administrator and I was an exile, (laughs) along with a a good bunch of people from another forum that went south. And I have to say that Chris and pretty much everybody at movie forums have been more than welcoming of us invading their space. Mm -hmm. Uh, So how long have you been at movie forums, administrator or not?
2: uh well i created it uh when oh. i was so so i'm both i'm the founder that, that's owner that's one of the
1: things that i wanted to ask you
2: <laughs> yeah no i've uh, i started it when i was about 15 and okay. i've been running it for over 22 years which is almost 60 percent of my life so really really long time I've been there since the beginning the handful of people who have been there pretty much the whole time can tell you i didn't really know what i was doing at first And some would say I still don't, but I definitely know a little more than I did back then. And yes, no, uh, I remember when you came by along with a lot of the other, I guess I'll say refugees. We get a lot of forum refugees as forums shut down. And when you run a forum for that many years, a lot of forums come and go and people look for new ones. But I remember thinking early on that a lot of you guys were a great fit and you in particular, and uh, we've been so happy to have you.
1: Actually, that's one of the things that I wanted to mention because ever since I joined, I've been impressed about a lot of things at the forum. I've been impressed at all the little details of the site because it is a very complete site. It's not only a forum because you have the film information, you have like a collection of reviews, you have lists, uh, even a podcast that comes out every now and then. Every <laughs> now, you're being very generous
2: with every yeah. now and then, but
1: yes, <laughs> <laughs> which you often co-host. But aside all of that, the longevity. Like you said, it's been twenty. 22 20, years. 22 yeah. years, yeah. And I mean, at a time when most forums have died, Movie Forum seems to keep going strong. And what do you think is the secret?
2: Uh, just constant change really, uh, just kind of rolling with it because it's changed so many times. You know, you mentioned uh, reviews. I mean, originally, that was just me writing reviews. And when I got busy, there were just no new reviews. And then I brought some other people in, but then they got busy and some people come and some people go. And it was years and years into the site's history until I finally said, you know what, let's just take these reviews that are on the forums. Let's build a little tool to sort of pull them from there and reproduce them over here and formalize the process. Uh, And it was a lot of work. and took a really long time. Um, And, you know, obviously, you get reviews that are a little less polished now as a result. They're user-based reviews, but you also have way more, and I think our, our user reviews are still really excellent. But things like that, right? Basically, like, oh, this isn't working change adapt you know over time and then i'm going to give a contradictory second response uh <laughs> don't change in certain ways which is to say don't try to become twitter don't try to become facebook don't compete with all the things that have been killing forums except that you're a forum and lean into the strengths of the forum that social media can't compete with and if that means fewer posts and traffic which it has for the last few years and, and uh it's still going pretty strong but you know used to be forums or everything you know they were social media I'd rather have 300 really good posts every day than, you know, 600 little Twitter-style nothings. So, you know, accept that you're a forum, lean into being a forum, and people who want that will
1: find it. That's one of the things that I've noticed in some of the forums I've been in, that the alleged reasons that some of them have closed is that they want to try to be something else. It's really uh, like some of them have pretty much close without even informing the users. And it, it's been quite a journey. So it's interesting, like I said, to see how the forum is booming. Uh, yeah. It's still booming.
2: That's very One nice of, th- of you to say. Yeah, thank
1: you. One of the reasons why I think the forum still stands strong as a recent newcomer is all these countdowns and little events and Hall of Fames that you all do. I think it keeps the people engaged in discussions and, and goals and, and keeps that momentum going.
2: I I totally agree. In fact, that actually probably should have been part of my earlier answer, which is, you know, the countdowns, they seem like this big official thing, but I had nothing to do with those. You know, people just did them on their own. They, someone created a spreadsheet at one point and entered things by hand and calculate things by hand. And they just pass that around to each other. And then after a while, I'm like, you know what? I should probably help with this. I should probably <laughs> make this a little easier and reduce some of the legwork. Like that's what, what is an administrator for? If not for things like that, you know, you can just do your moderation and fix bugs and worry about the site staying up, or you can do a little something extra. You can see when people like organically come up with their own traditions and their, own habits like that, and then say, how can I help them, you know, do what they want to do with movies. So I think actually, yeah, formalizing the countdowns has been one of the bigger things we've done, just like that, just like the people are going to tell you what they want, right? And just just give them the tools.
1: Yeah. And as a matter of fact, right now, the forum is about to unveil its top 100 films of the 2010s as a result of how many ballots we have submitted already.
2: Uh, 59 so far. And that doesn't sound like very many because we're three days away from the deadline. Yeah. But you know that yeah. most of the ballots come in in the last few days. So we're I, probably going to get at least a few
1: dozen more. The big deluge is, is in the last days. Yes, always.
2: <laughs> always. Everyone puts it off, myself included.
1: <laughs> I wanted to get it off my chest. and So I submitted it a couple of days ago. Um, <laughs> that's actually the reason why I contacted you to be my guest in this episode. Because I hosted the top 100 films of the 2000s earlier this year. Was it earlier this year? I think
2: it was last year, but again, time
1: has no meaning. You you did a
2: really good job. You're not going to say it because you're a modest guy, but I will say it for everyone else. He did a fantastic job. And I know it was both a lot of work, but also a lot of fun.
1: No, yeah, definitely. It was very rewarding. So I I really had fun with it. So we were often going back and forth during that time. And then we even recorded a brief podcast for the forum about that. So I thought it would be apropos to have you in for this. I thought, yeah, definitely Chris is the one to call for this. Yeah, now we're even.
2: One (laughs) podcast each. uh, It's my move next.
1: (laughs) So aside from your work at the Forum, what do you spend your time on? I know you like softball. I think you're a softball (laughs) coach, right?
2: Yeah, coach and player. uh, I play on uh, six teams a week every day but Friday during the summer. That's about half the year, though. So the rest of the year, uh, I just wait for it to get warm again, I guess. But uh, (laughs) a day job, I'm a web developer, television producer, and semi-professional esports caster
1: in my spare time. Okay, that's that's great. And uh, you said you started out 15 with This forum, you don't work in the industry, right? Well, you say you were a television producer, right? So, okay, yeah, I take but, that but, yeah, But yeah, no, I'm not in Hollywood in any sense of the word, no. But at 15, what sparked that decision to create this forum?
2: Well, it's actually more about the forum than the movie part. I kind okay. of was interested in a piece of forum software and I wanted to make a forum. And so it sounds weird, right? Normally, someone has an interest and they make a forum or a site for it. But in this case, the desire to make a forum came first. And I kind of thought about what things I could make it for. I thought about sports. And I realized, you know, I really like movies. And I looked around for some domain names, which were plentiful back then. Uh, I remember specifically that I saw that movie forums was available and movie boards, because some people called forums boards back then, like bulletin boards. And I had to pick which one I thought was better, because at 15 years old, it's like $35 $35 a year, and that's a lot of money, you know, when you're 15 sometimes. And now I feel like an idiot. I should have bought them both, and I should have bought five other domains besides and have <laughs> sold them for much, much more later. But of course, none of us knew that at the time. I do think I picked the right one for what it's no, worth.
1: Hey, the, the name is, is, is genius. That's a it's
2: it's so straightforward, you know. How yeah, could you go wrong? It's
1: almost it's boring, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, again, you've been 20 20-something years at it, which is more or less the time that we're gonna cover in in this. Oh, that's right. Uh, Yeah, in in this uh, episode. So why don't we segue into that and let's talk about the Millennium. And like I said before, this will be the last guest episode of the year at the Movie Loot. For those that have been listening to all year, we started the year with the Silent Loot, an episode that we dedicated to early silent films, along with Brian Scottle from Sonic Cinema. He was my guest for that episode, a great guest. So this episode will serve as a sort of bookend to that as we focus on films released in the new Millennium. One of the first, I want to ask you first your opinion, and I think that the answers are obvious, but what trends do you think pop out to you in this millennium?
2: Well, I know what people complain about the most, because when you run a forum, that's the thing you're most in tune to, is what are people upset about? Because people being angry produces uh, far more enthusiasm on the internet than people being happy, unless something's really good. If that those two things are close, then you know something's really good when people are talking as much about a positive thing as they normally do about a negative thing. But it's mostly the complaints about there are too many remakes, there's too many reboots, there are too many prequels, Hollywood doesn't have new ideas anymore, you know, stuff like that. And I'm actually going to, I'm going to push back on that idea a little bit i think some of this is generational i think there were remakes and reboots and prequels when i was growing up you know before the millennium but they were for things that were like noticeably dated and are something i hadn't experienced yet so i liked them you know because it's only a reboot if you've already seen it otherwise it's just a movie um i think the threshold for everyone is probably that that first time they remake or reboot something you're old enough to have seen the first time that's the moment you first feel old as a movie watcher, I think, <laughs> when that happens, when you remember the original and then they're making it again for all those silly kids who never saw the original.
1: I agree with you, um, but I think that the ratio at which prequels and sequels and reboots are coming now, it's far more, maybe I'm, I don't know, I, I don't have stats, but I think it's far <laughs> more close than before. Uh, You think there's just more of them, yeah. yeah.
2: Well, that that could be, but one of the things that's really hard to gauge is that there's more of everything, right? Like, there's just so much more being produced that it makes it very hard to tell what there's more of relative to everything else. So maybe, I mean, sometimes I wonder if we're actually producing fewer original ideas or if it's just that the appetite for entertainment just keeps expanding. And even if you produce more original stories than ever before, you're still going to need to tell existing stories more to keep up with that ridiculous demand because you get people who watch two movies a day uh, on our yeah. site uh, every single day or even one movie a day is a lot and when you do that you run out almost after a while <laughs> yeah. so i think i think there's an incredible demand for entertainment more than there's ever been and that makes it very hard to say how much of any of this is happening because we have so much of everything now
1: yeah yeah i, I agree but there are people that say that like i said there are times that you go to the theaters and every single film is part of a bigger franchise or an established ip and there are less and less original films everything has to be tied to a certain ip whether it is a comic book which is the other the other Mm -hmm. uh, maybe trend that we can touch on or a video game or or some already established franchise for example And I'm going to jump into a comic book topic maybe, but stuff like Spider-Man and Batman, which are pretty much being rebooted every four years or every five years, I think that's, that's like too much.
2: Yeah, that, those examples, like, really stand out, obviously. Like, we're at the point where Batman is basically like James Bond, which is <laughs> like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, it's basically the same kind of character. I yeah. think you've actually raised a really good point, which is that, so obviously it feels like this. It feels like this to me, too. Even while I'm sort of, like, pushing back on the idea, I also have the same emotional response that you're talking about that I think you have and most people have. I think part of it is that they're disproportionately represented among bigger budget films, so you see more of them at the theater, too, which makes sense, right? A big budget film is a big risk. Existing properties have like a higher floor that helps mitigate the inherently insane risk of spending hundreds of millions of dollars on a movie, of all things. You know, it's easy for you and me to roll our eyes at it. And I absolutely do. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I roll my eyes at it all the time. But imagine you had to spend some amount of money, right? Whatever amount is huge to you and how hard you might work to make that choice that reduce the risk of losing it. So I think that's the version uh, that is most valid, which is that they take up a lot of the big bigger budgets whether or not there's still plenty of original things when you go to the multiplex when you see where most of the money is being spent it's on existing properties because those are the safest right the least likely to, to lose money so i think it's it's almost if you want to get rid of that what you have to do is sort of get rid of 200 million dollar movies period if they all cost 50 million if there was some crazy law that said every movie has to cost no more than 50 million you'd see more uh, originality in the theaters
1: and i think it's a weird cycle because people complain ah, oh, there's there's no originality anymore everything is like i said based on an established ip but then people will go see those films <laughs> right. and that's the reason <laughs> yes. that that studios yes. keep making those films because yeah there's a return on investment as they say okay i'm gonna i'm gonna keep making this film and so so it's kind of a weird cycle i think
2: i i agree and i i don't have a problem i didn't have a problem with initially because i was a big fan of the early mcu stuff i really enjoyed it i defend it to this day yeah, I guess. i'm a fan too i've yeah. seen them all <laughs> yeah I, at this point i think I've, i'm pretty close i'm like one behind at any given moment
1: well but... no actually i haven't seen anything of phase four just shang chi is the only one so I, i'm falling behind okay. on that but
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Once they become like available to rent, for example, that's, you know, that's when I tend to catch up on them. But that's the point, right? I used to go out to the theaters every single time. And I made sure to see them. And some of them I saw opening night or midnight or whatever. And that's a little less common now. So it's actually kind of funny. I defended the MCU for so long that it eventually became most of the things the critics were saying, I think. Like I think the things they were saying about the MCU all along are now mostly true about the recent MCU. I say that as someone who's still a fan and still wants to see where it goes and everything, but it does kind of show you the limits of these things. I know people are they're looking at the MCU and they're thinking, oh, it's gonna be this for fifty years. You know, we're never gonna have any room in the multiplexes for anything. But you kind of see that as much as people really like that, they have gotten a little tired of it. And I think it's pretty clear that they do have to change, much like forums, they have to change yeah. to keep surviving at the level they were at before
1: and i think that i mean obviously we're getting deep into the comic book trend now but they've been at it since if we're i think that the period of serious investment in comic book films started maybe with the x-men um, which yeah. was more or less at the turn of the millennium and then spider-man and obviously later in the decade the mcu started so they've been at it 20 20 plus years and i think there's going to be a time where the bubble will pop up as all bubbles pop. And like I said, you kind of start to see that fatigue, and I think there are a lot of reasons to that. But one of the things that I find weird, and I might take a bit to try to make a point here, but a friend of mine, one of my listeners, once compared comic book movies to the Westerns of the 50s and the 40s, because back in the day, that was what studios were more or less churning out like a machine. You know, there was like a conveyor belt established and there was a formula. You know, you grab this Western actor, you put it here, you put this and that, and there goes a Western film. And it's weird because the industry kind of moved away from that in the 60s and the 70s with the new Hollywood and then in the 90s independent films and now we're kind of back on that same track with big studios once again using this trend of comic book films once again like a conveyor belt of churning out comic book films We're going to take this superhero We're going to put this director here We're going to do this And there's a formula And you kind of see that formula in the MCU You kind of know how the film will flow With whatever differences Because of the director they choose But you know that at the end There's going to be a big bombastic battle <laughs> That That's the formula And there's going to be that Little post-credit scene That's going to tie everything together So I find it kind of weird That we're going back to that Instead of maybe in a way supporting more authors and, and independent artists just going back to that system that studio system
2: yeah well I think, that's, I think that's a good point, and I think there's a, a kind of a cyclical nature, like you mentioned with the Westerns, yeah. that, you know, we jump forward 30 or 40 years, and there might be something similar happening, but with some genre other than superhero films, yeah. right? I think the real challenge for for the superhero films is that this was never really sustainable. Like, first of all, it's just the utter domination. Like, you just can't keep it up. But also, that what I mentioned earlier, moviegoers just kind of getting tired of it. If it is formulaic, people will catch on to that. Even the, the dull-eyed masses or the people who love the MC you know, whatever you want to think of of people who love the MCU, or the people who, let's say, love every single MCU TV show and movie no matter what, and don't think it's gotten any worse, I think that's a little silly maybe, right, to not be able to see it clear-eyed. Um, say what you will about those people, but like, they have limits to this stuff too right you can't trick yourself into being moved by the exact same story over and over again without some creativity to it and this is what happened to comic books themselves right is that they've become let's say if you went to the 80s and 90s they've become a niche thing after being a dominant cultural form for for kids for decades and that changed well why did it change because they're telling serialized stories well what happens with serialized stories well they have to end right to be a proper story and if they don't end what do you get You get people dying and coming back from the dead. You get (laughs) clones. You get multiple universes. You get all these fake contrived ways to try to keep the story going and make it seem like it's a continuous story when you're really telling a new story over and over again. Those were the original reboots, right? And it became like retconned. Comic book fans know all about the word retcon, which was retroactive continuity. It's where you – write something that is not really consistent with what came before but sort of changes the past so you can kind of hand wave it away and make it sound like it all makes sense because, I don't know, quantum mechanics or whatever, (laughs) right? Whatever made-up reason you want to do. And that's what happened to comic books is they become like this retcon nightmare. And then eventually people go, eh, too much work. Too much work to keep up with comic books is like a job. And the movies, let's be honest – They're starting to get there, just barely. This Phase 4 stuff, there's all this multiverse stuff now. It's getting complicated. I've heard a lot of people say, oh, I missed a couple movies or I didn't watch the Disney Plus shows. Oh, I'm not quite getting as much out of this as I I think I could. And sometimes you can't even follow it, although they're pretty good about that. But that's getting harder for them to do. So one of two things is going to happen. Either it's going to fade off and all the critics can stop complaining because it won't be so dominant anymore. Or... They're going to have to get really creative and find ways to keep this fresh. So that it isn't so formulaic anymore. Like those, there's no third option, right? It's got to be one of those two things or some combination.
1: One of the things that, and and maybe you can give me your perspective as a TV producer, but one of the things that we've already started touching on is TV. And and TV has also played a big part in this millennium because this millennium, uh, before jumping and entitling it into into comic books, but this millennium is also credited as a new golden age of television, which started with the Sopranos and stuff like Breaking Bad and a new type of, tv show with more quote-unquote quality but then you get all these comic book shows and there's an acronym that i don't remember now but that people used to say that uh, a fear of missing out fomo fomo yeah there's that fear of missing out because i haven't seen like you said i haven't seen the disney plus show or i haven't seen this show or that show and it's all tied together will i miss out will i understand this or will i get that do you think that's a negative
2: Well, I mean, it definitely is a negative for what they've been trying to do, because what they've been trying to do is total media entertainment domination. And they've done that. That is not consistent with that FOMO, because there's only so many hours in the day, right? If it's not something people can jump in and out of mostly, they're going to lose people. And it will, however, increase the fervency of the fans which is to say the people who love the MCU and absorb all of it really love it. And they live or die with these characters and they talk about them all the time. We have a couple people on our site, I would say, who are like that. And God bless them. You know, I'm not trying to judge those people. But it's a different experience for them than it is for you or me or someone who catches most of it or, you know, God forbid people who only watch one or two of the movies or none of the shows. So, yeah, I think what it, that FOMO, you see it in video games, too. You see it in the original comic books. You make it so that... The people who stick with you have so much invested in it that they are super-duper fans, but other people gradually fall away, and it becomes that niche product. So I think the TV shows have kind of hurt them in that regard, which is to say they they already had plenty of super fans. What made the MCU different was that everyone was in on it you know it was very widespread majorly into the mainstream that's what made this different than you know x-men was a hit here and there and the first spider-man was a hit they weren't dominating that didn't lead to anything it's the mcu specifically that we're really talking about here i think as opposed to the odd superhero film here or there it's the ongoing story it's the buy into the whole universe interconnectedness and i think with that the TV shows have really kind of diluted that because they put people in that impossible position of: Do I watch everything? Do I watch every single episode of this show? I maybe don't think is that great just to keep up, and then it starts to feel like work, and that that can't last.
1: Yeah, and, and Star Wars is kind of following on in, in the same formula, right? And I don't know, I don't know. Like I said, how how much of a good idea is that on the long run? Another question that I wanted to ask, since we're already knee deep in MCU talk, why do you think that? I kind of know the answer, but why do you think that DC hasn't been able to capitalize on that effervency of comic books, considering that they have probably the two most popular heroes out there, you know, Batman and Superman?
2: Yeah, well, I'm going to double on Superman just a little bit. I'm going to say that while he's historically popular, he's ill-suited to to modern day stories. Um, I I, 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 agree. Yeah, I, I don't think now. I think that's a shame. I don't really, I'm not. I don't really jibe with a lot of modern storytelling conventions as much as some people. I like the old-fashioned stuff a little more often. Uh, classic literature, like I, I try not to get stuck in like what do people today like too much because we already have a lot of that. It's a lot of work to bust out of that and appreciate older kinds of stories that, frankly, were way less heavy on characterization, right? Superman is more of an archetype kind of thing. He's not really yeah. like a person, and that's okay. It's okay, but that's not what audiences are used to anymore. So it might be fair to Sorry. say they have one big hero, but arguably the single best. Batman is the single coolest superhero, period. If I didn't know anything about the director or the history of the movies or anything, and you just said you have to see one superhero movie, what's the one you're most likely to like? It's a Batman movie. No question. I don't even have to think about it. But your question still holds, right? They have a lot of good talent there. Honestly, I don't think it has anything to do with the characters. I think it just comes down to boring logistical competence. I don't think they did the hard work of planning it out, putting the right people in charge, And committing upfront to this is how we're going to do it. It's going to take a while. It's going to be a risk. But we're not just going to put a movie out and then put another movie out and then put a third one out and then sort of pull them together. Right. You can't do that. You can't tell a story like that. You can't do this thing that has basically never been done at this scale. Not in cinematic history, maybe in storytelling history, but definitely in cinematic history. You can't do that by the seat of your pants you can't do that on the fly you can't just make that up as you go it's a disaster so i think it's just not being willing to put in the work up front to make it happen
1: yeah i think that they kind of like what you said they wanted to jump in and catch up with marvel from the get-go and and they jumped too soon and they like you said they release okay one film one film and then we're going to smash them together and again to what you said i don't think that Zack Snyder maybe was the right choice. I'm sorry to maybe invoke the hatred of the. Yeah, be careful there. Yeah, mm, but, but he
2: said last podcast of the year. How about last podcast ever? If you're not careful, <laughs> Zack Snyder fans no. and I, I, one of my, bro, my brothers, a huge Zack Snyder fan too. So I know what this is like. uh Yes, they're fervent about that guy. So you're you're trying to tread very
1: lightly here. Uh, I, I'm I'm going to give him some slack to the extent that I don't think that maybe. He was, I mean, he was how many films did, like three or four films, and, yeah. and most of them hadn't been that well received. So I always question why did they hand the, the keys to the kingdom to this guy? It, well, it's weird. I'm going to give him slack, too. I think he has a genuine artistic vision which is
2: more than you can say for some of the MCU films. I say that even liking some of the less visionary MCU films more than his, because I don't always like his vision. I appreciate it, Uh, and sometimes I really like it, but it is a clear vision. It's the thing that people have complained the MCU doesn't have enough of, right, is like a real auteur at the helm of some of these things. That is both the best and worst thing about Zack Snyder's superhero films. But you're absolutely right that he is not the right choice for that type of universe, for that type of interconnected thing where you do need to kind of standardize it a little bit so that the pieces all still fit together. Uh, Zack Snyder is terrible for that because he has a very distinct visual and storytelling <laughs> style. So someone else trying to work and match his style is just very difficult. And frankly, it's not what directors are used to doing. They're used to controlling totally in the modern day. They're used to putting their stamp on it. So when you do something like the MCU, it's sort of like trying to square a circle. It's You're trying to take in all these talented people, but then also get them to suppress themselves a little bit. not a lot. You don't want to lose what makes them valuable or distinct, right? But they have to suppress enough of themselves that someone else can come in and match them on some level. And Zack Snyder, whether you love him or hate him, is, uh, is not that guy. He will not be suppressed.
1: Yeah. And another thing, and I want to... I want to get out from comic book films quickly because I I don't want it to be a a comic book loot. But (laughs) one of the things that I don't know if it's a strategy from Marvel or poor planning, I don't know. But it seems weird that they took like, how much was it? Was it 11 years in the whole Infinity Saga?
2: Yeah, just about. Yeah, because Iron Man was 2008, I think.
1: Yeah, so kind of like 11 years and now they, they are planning for this multiverse saga to be done in like five years. Something like that? Yeah, that's a really good point. It's very compressed, isn't it? And it feels... I don't know if they're going to shoot themselves in the foot like DC did, like trying to rush things, or I don't know if they're trying to close things up as much as they can before the bubble bursts.
2: (laughs) That's an interesting thought, is that they might kind of realize this is not sustainable and they kind of want to finish telling their story and then shift gears again. Yeah, uh, yeah I don't know. That's a really good. That's a really good. Uh, a really good thought. That's a really good thought experiment, sort of. I do think though that they must realize on some level that things have to change. They must realize it, by now at least, if they didn't before. But that's the thing, too. If they realize something, they've got years of stuff in the pipeline. This is the real risk. Why didn't DC do it? Because it's a lot of work to plan out four or five years in advance, never mind eight or nine or ten. But that also means, and here's where the risk comes in, maybe you decide three years ago. Maybe in 2019, Kevin Feige says, huh, this next phase is not as good. This is starting to get a little complicated. Uh Uh-oh. This is looking, (laughs) the quality level's dipping a little bit. If he decided that three years ago, we still wouldn't be seeing a result yet because they have to do so much in advance. That's the real risk, right? So it's entirely possible that they already know this is a problem, they're already fixing it, but it's not going to show up on our screens for another year or two, whatever they want to do differently.
1: Yeah, yeah. We mentioned a bit about the Marvel shows and how they can affect uh, our, our enjoyment of the films. But another great thing that has happened this millennium is the birth of streaming. I already mentioned the golden age of television where more so-called high-quality television has come out, but then you have streaming. What effect do you think that has had in all entertainment films or TV? I think that's a very broad question, but, yeah. but what effect do you think it has had in movies,
2: Well, I mean, it's definitely led to fragmentation. It didn't have to. The binge model obviously means that nobody's watching anything at the same time as anyone else anymore. And I think that has been a real loss. I really appreciated binging at first, but that's because it was one or two shows. It was House of Cards or whatever, and, and that was fun. And there were only one or two shows doing it at any given time, so a lot of people... We're still close to watching things at the same time because they all watched it over a weekend or two. And now with so many films coming out all at once and so many shows, uh, I should say shows coming out all at once, and films coming out alongside them, you never know. You're never on the same page as anyone else, which means you don't talk about it as much. And if you don't talk about it as much, you lose something. I think people are starting to tune into the fact that a big part of the value of these shows – was the anticipation was the community aspect the communities that built up around them it wasn't just watching it right yeah shows more than movies in particular the, the water are cooler
1: conversation
2: Absolutely. And that's way more important for shows than movies. So I think that's kind of been the number one thing is that they kind of screwed up with that. It worked on a small scale. But once you're doing binging on a large scale, you break what makes TV special, what makes TV different than movies. So I mentioned earlier, you know, forms being different than social media. And the number one thing is that they're asynchronous, right? It's not real time. You put a post up, you come back two days later, and someone replies, and then you reply to them another day. You know, it doesn't have to happen rapid fire. The same thing is true of movies, right? The movies sit there for decades. You can see a movie from the 70s today and find someone else talking about it and just sort of resurrect the conversation. That's not TV. TV actually is naturally more like social media. TV needs to be reacted to, you know, week by week. So I think that is something that they kind of messed up originally with the streaming model and are just trying to figure out. We've seen some streaming shows since, you probably noticed this, that are coming out week by Uh, week again yeah. yeah or more likely they've split the difference in a really nice way the first one or two come out at the same time or the last two come out at the same time but in between it's week by week and that's been way better i think that's been way better but honestly to answer your question a little more directly what's the biggest difference as a result of streaming and all the increases in streaming uh it's actually a very boring answer it's just that so much freaking money has been thrown at it that it has warped the entire industry and it has not been money well spent. I mean, there are you're seeing it left and right. Streaming services have topped out on their subscribers or they're losing subscribers. They are cutting back their media budgets. Uh, they absolutely have to. They're raising their prices. You know, that was living on borrowed time. It was never sustainable, just like the MCU isn't really sustainable. I think it was just the industry warping tonnage of money thrown at creators for a while there is ultimately the biggest thing that happened, even though it's a pretty boring answer.
1: I was actually making a point about that on Twitter today to someone else who was talking about AMC+. Plus, Like, how did they talk that they could be sustainable and that they could be a service with all the competition of Netflix and Apple and Disney+. Plus. But I was telling him, you know, this is a fight. I mean, this is a, like to tie it to the conversation about bubbles before. This is a fight right now. They're all fighting. This is a new product, a new thing. And they're all fighting to stay in there. And, and like all bubbles you're going to see like a hundred different streaming services pop up trying to grab a slice of the pie. And at the end, only two or three are going to stand tall, but they want to be that one. So they're going to try to be that one. They're going to do their best to stay. But at the end, they're all going to fade.
2: I I think that's probably true, but I also am even more pessimistic, which is I think even some of the winners are going to look back at how much money they spent and realize that they still kind of lost, you know, that they didn't have to do it that way. I think they're fighting for a prize, but I think the prize is also not as good as they think it is. You know, I I understand when it's when when it's new, the money that Russia is in is not just to be first, but it's also because you don't know how big the new thing is going to be. And I think they're learning that streaming is not going to be quite as massive in terms of actual money making. as they'd hoped.
1: And speaking of new things, I want to shift a bit into one of the last things that I want to touch. One of the things that we've seen also in this new millennium and pulling it back into films is the, let's say, the rise of A24, which is one of the most renowned studios right now to produce films of, uh, I want to say, quote unquote, high quality. And it's been interesting to see them try to produce original ideas, and try to fight against those trends that we were mentioning at the the beginning, like prequels, sequels, reboots. And they've come out with hit films like Hereditary, like Moonlight, like Lady Bird, Ex Machina, The Witch, or stuff like that. What do you say about how A24 is working and what they're putting out? Well, personally, it's what
2: I find most interesting. Like, if I could construct what I want out of the film industry right now, it would be that thing I alluded to earlier. Instead of $300 million for one movie, I want six or seven movies for 40 or $50 million each. Yeah. You know, I want as many different ideas because the real benefit of technology should not be that CGI can be in every shot. The real benefit of technology should be that you can use CGI to make very good-looking movies for tens of millions of dollars rather than hundreds of millions of dollars. To me, that's the real benefit to moviegoers of CGI increases, especially effects increases and camera quality and all that i love that they exist i love that they have this brand for weird risky movies it's exactly what i want the industry to be doing and it is sort of the counterpoint to the mcu thing which is you know it is the other way around but it still has a brand it's interconnected in, in a sense the stories are not interconnected but when you hear a24 film, certain things come to your mind yeah and it's not as reliable when you go to see a marvel film you have a really good idea what you're getting when you go to see an a24 film it's not as clear, but you still get something. You still have a general sense of the kind of – you're going to get something audacious. You're going to get something a little raw and uh, interesting and risky, and that is a brand in and of itself. But that's kind of the point, right, is that when I say ever, more of everything is being made, this is kind of what I mean, that the MCU and A24 are both thriving in their own sense, uh, even though one's making way more actual dollars than the other. A24 seems to be doing pretty well. They're doing well enough to keep making these kind of movies and build up a following. And there is so much demand for entertainment that there's enough room for both of them right now. And, you know, five or six other examples that you might name also that we don't even have time to get into for crying out loud. Like, there's so much out there. But that's kind of the point, right? The more people get tired by the big budget stuff, the more room you create for a a place like A24 to thrive.
1: Yeah, and we're probably going to talk a bit about some A24 films later down the road. Yeah, yeah. So before heading into the Millennium Loot, let's relax a bit with the game. What do you say? You want to play a game? Oh,
2: OK. Uh, <laughs> sure. I didn't know this was coming, but I'm
1: excited now. No, no, th- this I is like one of spice. my favorite parts of the show. This game I've called the Millennium Quote Game. And for it, I'm going to act a quote from a film from the Millennium. And I'm going to let you guess what film is it from. What do you oh, say? No.
2: Uh, I'm sure. I might embarrass myself, but I'm, I'm
1: anxious to try. Not more than I'm going to embarrass myself <laughs> acting them out. Uh, let's start with an easy one. I think. I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I hate most people.
2: Which one is is it? That is Daniel Plainview from There Will Be Blood. It helps that I rewatched that just about a month and a half ago. Otherwise, I might have needed a couple of minutes.
1: (laughs) You got it. You got it. Let's go with another one. A wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to.
2: That is Gandalf the Grey. I think it was neither is he early, actually, too. I'm a big Tolkien nerd. I should have warned you. I, I, love, <laughs> I love Tolkien. Before the movies. I'm ever. sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. But I'm, I was happy to hear that one. Uh, yes. The Lord of the Rings. Uh, the Fellowship of the Ring.
1: Yes. You got it. Two for two. All right. They're going to get harder, aren't they? Uh-oh. Uh, let's see. Let's see with this one. Sitting in your chair, I would probably say the same thing. And 999.999 times out of a million, you would be correct. But in the pages of history, every once in a while, fate reaches out and extends its hand.
2: So the first thing that came to my head was Kill Bill when she finds out she's pregnant. But I, but I think, oh, that la- the end of the quote is making me doubt myself and thinking that it's just a very similar quote from another film. I'll say Kill Bill, volume two.
1: You are Close. It's oh. Tarantino, but it's Inglorious Bastards.
2: That's, That's right. Oh, I was. Oh, <laughs> oh, that one's gonna bug me because Bastards is one of my favorite films. But yeah. there's a very similar line, I think, in Kill Bill, if I
1: remember right. She uh, finds in, out she's in,
2: pregnant, and there's a hole in the shotgun uh, in the door, and she says, "You know, any other day, you'd be right. I'd be lying."
1: Oh. is that the final conversation with
2: bill or, or?
1: no i know oh, yeah, it's said, the, assa- yeah. the
2: assassin who attacks yeah. her just as she finds out she's pregnant yeah yeah a very similar line this is me just rationalizing my failure by the way it's yeah. like oh i was so close because of this <laughs> other line uh tarantino cribbing from himself i think
1: i i haven't seen kill bill in, in a while so maybe yeah, that's why is that the second part that's I right, right the, yeah, the v- second i think it's yeah.
2: volume two yeah oh yeah. that one's gonna bug me though i should have yeah. gotten that
1: <laughs> let's let's try another one okay Let me ask you something. If the rule you follow brought you to this, of what use was the rule? Okay, you did the voice
2: really well there. That is Anton Chigurh in No Country for Old Men. Yeah. uh, Absolute modern-day classic. Oh, definitely. And I should point out, I had his haircut when I was a kid. That bowl (laughs) cut for when I was 10? Oh, yeah, I I rocked that. I think a
1: lot of people had that haircut.
2: (laughs) He made that haircut scary somehow. Least intimidating haircut in the world otherwise, though.
1: Wasn't it scary before?
2: Yeah, for a different reason
1: (laughs) Let me see how I can make this one without waking up my kids and and at a lower volume (laughs) So you do know the difference If you deliberately sabotage my band, I will fuck you like a pig Now, are you a rusher or are you a dragger? Or are you gonna be on my fucking time?
2: so that one i actually knew from the beginning where you said so you do know the difference because you hit the word do the exactly the right way your inflection was really good there that is whiplash which i also rewatched just a few months ago i wanted to see if it held up and oh my god it totally oh, does by the way
1: it's such a great film definitely
2: <laughs> your acting made that one easier because you said that first sentence just like he
1: does and and, and i couldn't scream louder <laughs> oh yeah
2: so you do know the difference like just like that
1: <laughs> yeah yeah love that scene yeah um, let's see this one there's going to be two guys talking. Okay. Oh, who the fuck are you? I'm the guy who does his job. You must be the other guy. Oh, uh... Oh, 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 oh. Is that The Departed? Yes. Ah, oh, okay. Mark, yes. Marky Mark.
2: Marky Mark. That's what I thought so. But I was worried that I was doing the same thing, that I was taking a similar line and, and moving it around. Yeah.
1: <laughs> You're doing good. You're doing good. You just missed the one. Which yeah, is but it's the one. But
2: of, of all the movies you've listed, that was my favorite of that <laughs> list, and I missed that
1: one. So <laughs> let's see, we have four left. Let's go it, with okay. this one. All right. Look, you're probably going to be a very successful computer person, but you're going to go through life thinking that girls don't like you because you're a nerd. And I want you to know from the bottom of my heart that that won't be true. It'll be because you're an asshole.
2: Yeah, that's the social network. That's the opening scene. And uh, it's a
1: really great scene. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Let's go with uh, number eight. I cannot begin my day with a confrontation, please. I'm delivering the dress today and I can't take up space with a confrontation. I simply don't have time for confrontations. Oh, OK. So
2: here's the problem. Uh, This is either a movie I saw once, and I'm not sure it's from that, but I'm doing it from context, or it's a movie I haven't seen, and I'm also going to be kind of guessing from context. The first would be The Devil Wears Prada, and the second would be Phantom Thread, which I have not seen yet, and I'm really embarrassed about.
1: You have to choose one.
2: Uh, I will say The Devil Wears Prada. Uh, Was it Phantom Thread? Phantom Thread, yeah. See, I haven't even seen it, but I'm like, this Ah. makes perfect sense. It even sounds more like P.T. to me. So, like, I should have. That's my fault. I have had that on my watch list for, like, two years, and I never quite get around to it because I know it's going to be challenging and subtle, and I have to be in the right
1: headspace to take in one of Anderson's uh, films. I'm still torn on my top five, but we might talk about that one. You might talk about
2: that? Okay. Well, now you know in advance that I don't have that much to say about it yet.
1: (laughs) So let's go with the last one, the last two. Look, memory can change the shape of a room. It can change the color of a car. And memories can be distorted. They're just an interpretation. They're not a record. And they're irrelevant if you have the facts. There's Memento. Yes. Excellent. Excellent film. And the last one. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Baby, (laughs) you are going to miss that plane.
2: Oh. You are going to miss that plane.
1: Oh, oh, no. What is, oh.
2: Oh, I'm blanking i feel like i'm so close but i can't
1: i don't know i don't know that one before sunset i never saw it i still haven't seen it no no have you seen any of them Sunrise. no no no
2: no. that's to my everlasting shame i know i do have for a guy who's run a movie site for 22 years i do have some really weird conspicuous gaps in my movie viewing uh we we all have we all have I always say it's I'm too busy writing code and fixing bugs to watch as many movies as the rest of you guys. Okay, if you had to run the site too, you would have some weird gaps.
1: Since we're talking about the millennium Loot, I haven't seen Mad Max Fury Road, and that's I think Ooh. that's my biggest blind spot. So wow, so you have. didn't
2: you didn't decide to watch it for the for the countdown?
1: You know, I, maybe I'll edit this later. But I did a challenge this other year where I asked people on Twitter, you know, recommend me twelve films, and I will watch all those twelve in the course of the year. You know. Easy peasy, but not so much because since I have my own challenge for the podcast and all that stuff, I've been trying to catch up with it. But one person recommended Mad Max Fury Road. He said, "You know, we have to see this." And I said, "You know, I know. I've been meaning to watch it." But I'm, I'm I've said this at the forum a lot. I'm, I'm a bit of an A person and I'm a bit of a completist. And I mm. came to see Mad Max Two earlier this year, oh. and I wanted to see all the films before going to Fury Road. I know they're not connected at all. Yeah, I know not no, related, that makes sense. But I'm I'm, I'm a video I completed. I actually saw Thunderdome earlier this month. Oh so wow. I have plans to catch up with Fury Road before the end of the year.
2: Yeah, that's that, that that's fair, and it actually goes. So we just to tie it back into the MCU a little bit. There's that whole thing about you know you can follow along, but you'll miss certain things. You'll get the most out of them if you watch all of them because they do reference each other. You don't need to get all those references, but you appreciate certain things more. Yeah, that's the same thing with Mad Max. You're thinking you know you might not need to see them, but you want to get the most out of it by having it, the whole history there.
1: It's like that thing that oh, I wanna experience it as most people experience it. You know, like watching yeah. them in succession. So that was my reasoning. But like I said. We all have gaps.
2: Yeah, we all have gaps. I tell you what, I've been meaning to rewatch it anyway because I only saw it the one time and I want to see how well it holds up. So maybe we'll both watch it pretty soon and we can both sort of talk about it in one of the threads.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. So it's time for our Millennium Loot, the moment where we will take turns in sharing our top five films from the new Millennium or just five films you want to put the spotlight on. It, it doesn't have to be your top five, mm-hmm. your exact top five, but just five films that you want to share. We'll start with your number five and take turns until we reach our number one. So, okay.
2: Yeah. I've got a it. mix of, of favorites and things I just kind of want to bring up, right? Um, the first one is more of a favorite. It's uh, Arrival, <laughs> the movie Arrival, Jeremy Renner, Amy Adams. Uh, For people who don't know, it's based on a short story by Ted Chang who is a sci-fi writer. It's actually part of a short story collection. um, And the original story was called Stories of Your Life. And I think he's maybe the best sci-fi author working today. Uh, He's written two short story collections, and I adore them both. If you liked the concept of Arrival, I cannot encourage you strongly enough to go read his books. They are fantastic. Several of those stories should be movies and probably will be at some point. And what I like about it is... You know, a lot of classic sci-fi, like Isaac Asimov's stuff, iRobot, you know, back in the day, it's a bit more about the concept than human emotion. A lot of classic sci-fi is about the concept. It's nerd stuff, right? It's hard sci-fi. And I don't want to overstate this, because Asimov wasn't just a big old nerd. He was a very good writer, and there was a lot of real storytelling and real heart and emotion in what he wrote. But the characters were thin compared to modern sensibilities. We mentioned earlier, people want modern characters to be very deep. And modern sensibilities increasingly put character depth front and center, and Arrival doesn't really give priority to either of those things. It doesn't scrimp on either end. It satisfies the two most important things for a good sci-fi story to satisfy. First, having that interesting premise, and second, exploring that premise adequately. And then, in addition to the sci-fi stuff, on the human side, it explores the premise through the lens of human emotion and experience in a a really beautiful way i just i can't remember seeing a sci-fi film where i honestly couldn't tell whether or not the human side or the sci-fi side was doing more of the heavy lifting like i honestly can't tell it feels like it's exactly 50 50 um and it's just gorgeous beside and it's a really freaking cool idea which the nerd in me still really likes so i think as as much as arrival gets a lot of attention i think it's still not enough i think decades from now people are really going to look back at that as an absolute classic
1: I'm, I like it, but I, I'm not as much of a fan as most people. I love pretty much almost everything I've seen. I, all I've seen from Bill Niu. I haven't seen Dune and I haven't seen his first ones. But I, I don't know if it was the thing that I kind of figured out the twist halfway oh, through. I see. And that kind of like pushed me away a bit, but I still liked it. And I have to say that one of the first sequences when they're entering the ship for the first time, Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the most intense uh, scenes that I've experienced on any film, and Villeneuve uh, has that ability because he, he does the same in Sicario. The first, um, yes, when they're running in the trucks to that first encounter, that's a whole hell intense scene. Yes, um,
2: and and you know what? With so many movies about aliens and things like first contact, getting audiences to kind of sit up and be excited about another example of it is really hard now. The degree of difficulty on an alien film, uh, not to give anything away, I think the premise, people understand there's aliens of some kind, is really difficult. And you're right, it's just purely down to his skill as a director, that he can give that moment, that first entry into the ship, like real weight and a sense of reverence and importance. So I think you're absolutely right, though, that, you know, even if you didn't like the rest of it, maybe as much, I think we probably agree that that early on is really the height of the film.
1: Yeah, but I still liked it. I've been meaning to rewatch it, mostly because I've seen that's like most people's favorite from the new. Uh, So I've been meaning to rewatch and see maybe if, okay now I know what's coming. So let's see if I can engage more with the film from a different perspective.
2: You're totally right. That absolutely happens sometimes. When there is kind of a twist or a mystery, like a murder mystery, it can make it very hard to appreciate the film the way the filmmaker wants because they go into it knowing it. And sometimes you go back and watch and you're right, you focus on other things because you're not focused on the plot so much. So yeah, that that might be true. A rewatch might uh, might land
1: differently. Yeah. Okay, so my number five, this is a very uh, emotional and favorite choice. And I'm going with Hugo from Martin Scorsese, 2011. This is my favorite Scorsese. Uh, Most people know that I'm not that big on Scorsese. Not that I don't like his films. I like most of them, but I usually fail to connect with most of his films. They're pretty much distant to me, and and I admire the craft, and I love the guy. Scorsese seems to be a really cool guy, and I love his uh, commitment to cinema. But That's one thing that really shines through on this film. And the reason that I'm starting with this film is that this film played a huge part in why I love early silent films and films in general. I mean, I've been a film fan since way before the film came out. But seeing this film really opened my eyes and opened like a new dimension so to speak kind of like hugo himself to a lot of that magic that is behind films i had seen meliès a trip to the moon before that but Mm -hmm. this really sparked my interest in his films my wife even bought me like a box set of meliès shorts Hmm. and i started to devour them and i become like a, a huge fan of his work and of many silent films which i talked about in the first episode of the year And the way that Scorsese takes this fictional story and whiffs it into the real story to sort of bring forward his love of cinema, I I really appreciate it. And I really love the film
2: yeah i mean it is a love letter to cinema really and i think it's boy isn't it interesting the fine line between formulaic and like beautiful homage because we talked earlier about comic book yeah. films and having a formula and then you look at this other thing and if you were like an alien on paper just kind of reading these things you'd go well isn't this the same thing it's just like all these references and it's all <laughs> isn't that a formula it's like well not really right this is why it's so hard to actually talk about some of these things because it's really just about is there like a soul behind it you know and what is the intent and what is the motive and i i think you picking hugo actually really underlines that point really well so that's it's it's lovely yeah thank you uh what's your number four uh, I'm going to go with – this is not exactly one of my favorites. This is more I want to draw attention to it. But it's close to being a favorite anyway. It's The Square, which I think is from 2017. It's a so. kind of a – yeah, sort of like a – almost like a faux documentary style kind of – a little bit. I'm exaggerating with that. But it has that feel of it, kind of very understated, very minimalist about an art installation called The Square. And the people around this art installation, the journalists writing about the art, the curators of the museum – everyone around this thing. I actually recorded a podcast of my own, discussing it with our members Slappy Davis and Neba. And it's probably my favorite of all the podcasts I've done, actually, because there is so much in this film to talk about. It's so layered. There's so much going on. And what I like in particular that I really want to highlight is that the art pieces in it, and particularly the, the titular square, Feel like real art pieces. They're good enough and interesting enough to feel like they could exist in real life. And I'm always really impressed when something like that happens. Like sometimes you have movies that are about a writer and they have to show you some of the writer's writing. And that's tough because they have to have fake writing that is good enough to feel like a real good writer's writing. You know, Like if you have Hemingway in a movie, like Midnight in Paris, you have to write Hemingway. You have to write half-decent Hemingway in your movie. Um, and the same thing is true here. If you have this movie about art, even though it's sort of making fun of the art, but not cheaply, it's kind of critiquing it, it also needs the art to be good enough to feel real. You know, And the best satire is like that. The best satire doesn't just hate the thing or just mock the thing it's making fun of, it actually really loves it too and understands it on a deep level so that it's able to critique it. And I don't really want to say too much more about The Square because I think it's best discovered, but I will say there is one scene in particular in The Square that is one of the most amazing scenes I have seen in any movie ever, and I will remember that until I'm 80. People who've seen it call it the monkey man scene. I won't say any more than that, and I don't think calling it that gives anything away. But I really do hope that if anyone is intrigued by the phrase "monkey man" scene, they <laughs> okay. will watch the square and check it out.
1: Okay, I, I have seen that film listed. It is it, foreign, right? Technically, yes, but it is a uh, it is English language. Um, okay. Um,
2: I think I can't remember which country it was made. I think it might have been Norwegian, but don't quote me on that.
1: But I think I've seen it mentioned because I think it either won a foreign film Oscar or or the Cannes what is it, the name of the prize of uh, the, the palm d'or oh, oh yeah, yeah it won yes yes
2: yeah. um it did win the palm d'or i just double checked just to make sure your remember yeah. it's quite good it won the palm d'or and it was nominated for best foreign language film yeah. but even the foreign language thing felt a little silly because it you wouldn't know it was foreign language really from watching it i don't think
1: yeah but i've seen it mentioned but i haven't gotten around to it but i have it on my watch list so i'm, I'm gonna start to try to prioritize it i hope you like it okay so for my number four um I I hadn't noticed, but the same year as Hugo, 2011, I'm going with Melancholia. This is Lars von Trier, starring Kirsten Dunst. Have you seen it? I have not. I've seen some von
2: Trier, but I am very behind on von Trier.
1: stuff. This is actually, I think, the only von Trier film I've seen. But I'm going to read what I wrote. I think I wrote this the same day that I saw it. This was probably 10 years ago or more. Still not sure what to think about it. It was beautifully shot with a very eerie ambience. Performances range from solid to great, but I just can't put my finger at what didn't work. The pacing, the characters, I don't know. But then I edited the review and I wrote, the film has surely stayed with me in a creepy sort of way. I haven't stopped thinking about it. And I think that's the best I can say about it. And ever since I saw it, I haven't stopped thinking about that damn film. (laughs) And it's uh, the more I thought about it, the more I learned to appreciate it. It's uh, I don't want to say beautiful because it's not beautiful as in a uh, so pretty, but it's an excellent portrayal of depression, of grief. It's so the whole ambience and the whole mood that the film gives you sticks with you and gets under your skin and crawls under you that that you can't stop thinking about it and and that's the main reason why i wanted to put it on this list it is gorgeously shot the cinematography is beautiful i don't remember who it was but it looks great and i recommended yeah. any cinephile. in case you don't know i don't know if you know what it is about but a,
2: a little bit yes um okay. and and yeah. based on what i know about lars von trier and uh the fact that it is so apparently a lot about depression and things like that yeah I, I was sure i'd read wrong when i heard what it was about I'm like this doesn't seem right these seem these things don't seem like they would link up so i am intrigued and in particular based on the way you just talked about it Those kinds of films are always really interesting. Obviously, I can't talk about the film on a granular level because I haven't seen it. But I know the kind of film you're talking about, where sometimes even on paper you're like – why, why do I like this? I don't know why I can't stop thinking about this movie. Exactly like you said, it gets under your skin. For me, that film was Magnolia, or that's one of the examples. It's the first one I think of. Yeah. And I can't always make an intellectual argument for those things. You know, I try to. I overintellectualize stuff. And that only makes it all the more powerful when a film like that completely subverts your intellect and crawls into your heart, sort of, and just yeah. won't leave until you think about it some more. And it sounds and, like this was that kind of film for you, and that alone makes me want to see it.
1: Yeah, and I I won't spoil it, but the ending is one of the most haunting things I've seen on any film, so it's, it's great. After reading what I wrote years ago, a decade ago, I'm willing to say now it's great film. Definitely. Okay, I'm putting
2: it on the list right now then. You, you totally <laughs> sold me. I'm going to move it up the, the massive watch list <laughs> that I don't have time to get through. I'll move it up.
1: Okay, so what's your number three?
2: Uh, my number three is this is definitely a, I want to draw attention to it. It would not make my top 10 even, even though it's a lovely film. Great film. Uh, it's called Take Shelter. This <laughs> oh, is a yeah, Jeff, yeah. yeah. This is a Jeff Nichols film. And actually one of the things I'll always remember about a member of ours who passed away recently, Mark F., he said something perfect uh, talking about, I think it was Take Shelter. He said, Jeff Nichols' films feel like novels. And I can't really explain why that's so smart without taking up another hour, but it is dead on. He captured something I was, I, I, a feeling I had about Jeff Nichols's films that I could not put into words. And as someone who tries really hard to put things into words and likes to talk a lot, it was very frustrating to not be able to put that into words. And then Mark just comes along with his brilliant cinematic knowledge and figures it out in one sentence. And I've thought of that ever since. And that's an example, by the way, of Mark and other members like Mark making me like a film more based on how they talked about it. I don't want to say too much about this film because it also is better not knowing anything and not because there's full of twists or anything, but because I just, I don't want people to have any preconceptions about it, but it's Michael Shannon's Jessica Chastain. It is a very low to mid budget film, but it looks great. You know, they do a lot with the money there and it touches on some of the same themes that actually you just mentioned with melancholia too. And it was just one of the first films where I specifically remember thinking I don't have to know exactly what's happening here. I don't need an answer as to what is taking place or what, I don't want to give too much away, but what's happening, what isn't, um, what the point of it all is. It was also coincided with me kind of growing up a little bit and like hitting my 30s and just sort of becoming comfortable with that kind of ambiguity in film that made me so, so mad as a young man every time it (laughs) happened. I just kind of remember kind of growing into it and Take Shelter was one of the first films I remember thinking that about.
1: Yeah, I agree. I I love it. And I actually saw it shortly after release, before Michael Shannon became like a thing. Oh, wow. And and became known for portraying crazy people. That's his shtick. Yeah. So I really appreciated the nuances in how his character deals with everything that's happening with him. Uh, So I I really enjoyed it. it. It's a great choice.
2: He has some moments in that film of just absolute amazing acting and by the way i would say this was one of jessica chastain's first notable roles too and she has the exact opposite performance it's way subtler but it's just as good and just as important so it honestly if you just like good acting and great atmosphere you're gonna love this film
1: yeah definitely i second that for my uh third one i'm gonna do some slight changes on my list which is gonna force me to sacrifice one that i love on the fly uh, at the end but it's it's another film that i don't know why maybe I know why, but I wish it was talked about more. And it's Siriana from 2005. Have Ooh, you seen it? I, I did. I actually saw that in theaters. In
2: the early 2000s, the site was only a few years old, and I was seeing everything in theaters back then, even really bad movies. Uh, not that Syria was one of them, but that was I was still in my crazy moving watching phase, and I did see it then, yes.
1: I was checking my letterbox write-ups, and I think I've seen this film like probably around 10 times. Wow. I, I love it. I rented it and I consider it a, uh, mess of captivating proportions uh, because (laughs) the film is such a mess, but in a good way, with so many uh, labyrinthine stories weaving in and out of each other. For those that haven't seen it, the film deals with many characters that are somehow affected by the oil business in the Middle East. And you get a a CIA agent, which is played by George Clooney, an economics advisor, which is played by Matt Damon. You get a prince in, in, in a Middle Eastern country, which is played by, I forget got his name, Alexander Siddig, I think. You get uh, uh, Jeffrey Bright in a killer role, one of his first most notable roles. And there isn't a shortage of great performances in there. Uh, you get very short performances, but great performances by William Hurt. And I love the plot and I love what it has to say that the darkness of the oil business and all the schemings that are behind all that but the performances are great, and the performances are what sells it for me. George Clooney, this is my favorite performance of him. I I like him and I love his performances usually, but he won't be an actor that would come up to my mind when speaking of range because I think yeah. that he knows what he's good at and he does that. But in this case, I think he's really good and he excels in this role. But all the characters and the way that the story uh, intertwines, and uh, it, it's a film that every time I see it, and like I said, I've seen it a lot of times, every time I see it, it never fails to surprise me. So uh, Siriana, again, like I said, it surprises me that it's not mentioned more often and mm-hmm. that it doesn't come up more often in, in discussions about great films of the decade or of the millennium. But I love it.
2: Yeah, I was surprised to hear that because you're right. You don't hear much about it anymore. I mean, for example, when I saw it 17 years ago. I haven't seen it since. And I honestly don't think I ever considered seeing it again. I I, I don't remember too many specifics anymore. But I do remember is definitely consistent with what you're saying, though, which is that like sprawling, maybe a mess, right? But that kind of film also benefits from repeat viewings, you know, uh, like the ones we were just talking about. So maybe leaning into that and not trying to make sense of it in the moment would help me, or maybe just seeing it a couple times and uh, making sense of the plot so that I can appreciate the performances more. I will say that at the time, there were a lot of films coming out that were like very serious. And they all had that like, that cinematography, like yellowish (laughs) tint, right? And everything is like, they're trying to convey the desert, and they do uh, it the like, very like obvious traffic. way. Yeah, like the very obvious way of just making everything look sand-colored. And it's like, yeah. I just remember th- kind of rolling my eyes at that. Maybe that was a little hasty on my part. But that's the thing, is like, it's, I remember it was draining to watch. And that might be the point, but that also is the kind of thing that you don't get around to rewatching sometimes when it feels draining.
1: Yeah, I think it's a. I think I wrote somewhere that it's not for people with short attention span. It's not yeah. a, an easy watch. You have to commit to it. And I think it wasn't until maybe second, third rewatch that I really got into the role of it. But it became like a thing that I, I owned it, and it became like a thing that I usually popped it in and, and just let it roll and watch it just on the fly.
2: Wow. I mean, I've heard people say that they put something on in the background like a bunch of different times, <laughs> but it's never been a movie like Siriana. That's a first. Wow. You might be the only person in the world who does that.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. I, I really love it. That's great. So uh, you're number three.
2: Oh, I think two. I think we're down to uh, two.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, it, this is a really boringly obvious choice for anyone who knows me from the site or in real life. I wrote a 7,000 word essay about this film. It's up. Pixar's up. <laughs> And the essay is on the site, by the way, movieforms.com essays. You'll find it right up there. And I, boy, what can I say about this? The popular consensus about this film is that the opening minutes are brilliant and that it's kind of forgettable after that. That's what most people say about it. But the more I watch it, the more I discover. I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say I found thematic ripples and double meanings and callbacks on my 15th viewing of the film. And I don't know what viewing I'm on now, but I found things every single time. And I spent years sort of collecting notes and observations about it. And that's why the essay took me so long to write, too, by the way. (laughs) It just kept getting bigger and bigger, and I kept collecting ideas. And it also hit me on a personal level because I had been dating my wife, uh, my then girlfriend, now wife, for a few years at that point and you know after a few years that you start asking yourself well what are we doing here you know that's a pretty common uh, thing to be and i was in my mid-20s so this is i'm approaching that point in life where you start thinking about these things and we saw the movie together, and it wrecked us emotionally, and I, I proposed to her exactly three weeks later. And uh, she said yes, and we played the film score at our wedding, and part of the score wakes us up on my phone every morning uh, to this day. Okay. It is beautiful. I'm sure you've all seen it. I'm sure you all know about it. But I wanted to specifically say that I really do think it is Pixar's best film, and that I want people who had that initial response that, oh yeah, the opening was so great, but then it kind of just became whatever. I really want them to give it another try and look for that thematic resonance. And hey, have the yes open next to you while you watch it. You'll be amazed at how much is in there. It blows my mind to this day how much they chalked into that film.
1: I think I read it, or at least skimmed over it. But, but yeah, I, <laughs> I really like the film. It's not a film. If you ask me, what is your favorite Pixar film? Maybe it wouldn't come to mind, mm-hmm. or maybe others will come out first. But every time I see it, I have a lot of fun with it. My kids loved it, and I think I have it rated pretty highly on, on Letterbox. So it definitely, it's a great film. For my number two, I'm going to go with, I think this is a basic one, but I'm going to go with Moonlight 2016. This is a film that I saw a couple of years ago, and it really hit me how... How deep it is, and how much it has to say with everything. Because one of the lines that I think it's my thesis of the film, it's one conversation that Maharsala Ali character has with the main character, where he said, at some point you gotta decide for yourself who you're going to be. You can't let nobody make that decision for you. And the way that film takes you on that journey from this character in trying to find out who he really is. And there are three chapters, and in each chapter, when he's a kid, when he's a teenager, and when he's an adult, a young adult, everybody calls him from a different name, and he deals with different issues in different ways. And that figuring out who I am, do I handle things with fear, do I handle issues with violence, or do I try to do something different, which is maybe what he does in the the last act which is definitely not what I was expecting. Yeah. And it's a film that challenges the way that we identify people and the way that we decide who is who. And also in the way that you can't decide what is this what, what this film is about. What is this film? Is this a drama? Is this a coming of age? Is this a romantic story? What is it? And, and I think that's really interesting. And, and it's one of those films that has really stuck with me and I've really, really loved it. And I think it's probably... I think it's the best of the decade for me. Wow, yeah. And and obviously I'm listening as number 2 of the millennium, so it's definitely one of the best films I've seen.
2: Yeah, you know it's funny. Um when you said you were making a late change, I like to imagine that you did have La La Land there, but at the last second someone <laughs> in your head ran up and said, "No, no, no, it's Moonlight
0: actually." <laughs>
1: i <laughs> i rate la la land quite highly i loved it too but well you, you're gonna see where it lands on my list for the Ooh, yeah, for the yeah. form
0: no i'm
2: just kidding no i i think that's that's a fine choice it's a beautiful film the two things that stand out for me i didn't have quite the same reaction i did really appreciate it i probably wouldn't put it on any of my best of lists but there are two things that come to mind immediately which is just i think probably the first time i saw or first time i really noticed marshal ali who is just a phenomenal talent. He has become one of my favorite actors so quickly. He's magnetic. I can I'd watch him in anything. Uh, and the other was the cinematography. And yeah. not just the cinematography is good. Of course, it's good. Specifically, the focus on what colors work well with black actors and actresses. I read an article about this recently. It was actually about an HBO show, I think. I'm not sure which. And it was cinematographers talking about how a lot of them have had to relearn parts of their craft. They've been so used to shooting mostly white people for a really long time. And it made sense when they were doing that to focus on that and then sort of figure out how to shoot black people differently, but the light hits different you know, you have to, you need to focus on it and now that they were doing shows where most of the cast was black, they thought, no, no, no this needs to be the focus now, this needs to matter more than how we were shooting before and it's, it's different colors, it's different reflections, and I thought, wow, that's such an obvious thing once you hear it, but it might never have occurred to you, it hadn't occurred to me very much at the time, and I read it, I thought, of course of course it would be different, and Moonlight is one of the first times I remember thinking, wow, they really paid attention to this, they really did this for the specific story and for the specific actors because there's something about the colors in that film that pop yeah. and i think it's because of that it's because it's playing to the cast specifically that they have in the story they're telling and it leads to some beautiful beautiful photography
1: yeah, I, I agree. That's something that we can be talking about that <laughs> a, a, a whole lot more, but the colors are very intentional, the way they use the purple in some scenes, yes. the way they use green in some scenes or blue in some scenes is very, very intentional. So yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, absolutely.
2: And it fits the theming too, the multicolored aspect of it too, you know, the rainbow yeah. flag, all that. Like it's, it's there's a lot of thematic elegance there, certainly. Yeah. Okay, on uh, number one now, yeah? Yeah. All right, so this is not really number one in terms of best or anything. I'm just, Again, these are just five films I want to draw attention to or talk about, yeah. but it it's be pretty high up there regardless. And this is my favorite Wes Anderson film, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Yeah, probably my favorite Wes Anderson. I mean, look, depends on my mood, but generally speaking, most days of the week, I'm going to say this is the best Wes Anderson. Uh, I really just want want to say two things about it, one of which I've said before, and one of which only occurred to me very recently, like after you asked me, what my five films would be. The thing I've said before is that I saw this film with a friend of mine. He's a guy I've known since I was 10 years old. Probably my first real friend ever. I met him in fifth grade my very first day of school and he was nice to me. So we became friends. You know, that's how that happens at that age. Uh, But as we grew up, we became very different people. And I'm not even sure if we'd become friends again if we met now, to be perfectly (laughs) honest. But that's okay, right? It's one of those friendships that's like based on its own longevity. So anyway, we saw this film together and we both loved it despite being very different now, and despite having pretty different tastes in movies, too, as you'd expect from being different people. And that makes me think that it's a special film, that fact alone, that out of all of Wes Anderson's films, it's the one that walks that line between heady art house stuff and broad comedic appeal. You know, that line he seems to always be trying to walk with all his films, really silly comedy, but also real art house auteur stuff. He's always trying to walk that line between silliness and sentimentality. And I don't think he ever walks that line better than he does with the reveal at the end of The Life Aquatic, which I was really genuinely moved by and will not describe too much because I don't want to spoil it for anyone. But it it is another one of those things that, like melancholia with you, burrowed under my skin and has never left. The other thing, the thing that just occurred to me after you asked me about these films, is that Anderson's hallmark of like cutting away from structures and displaying things in little dollhouse-style compartments is perfectly <laughs> yeah. suited to a submarine in that film. <laughs> so it's a really nice marriage of like his existing directorial style and the subject matter for that particular film, too. It's just a nice little elegant thing.
1: You know, Wes Anderson is a sort of blind spot for me. Mm. Um, I've only seen... Three films of him. I've seen Rushmore back when it was released, shortly after it was released. I saw Royal Tenenbaums also shortly after it was released. And I saw Fantastic Mr. Fox a couple of years ago. That's all I've seen. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know why. I like Rushmore. I like Royal Tenenbaums. I I liked all three. But I don't know if his aesthetics, I, I don't feel that drawn to them. Mm-hmm. I really don't even remember much about Royal Tenenbaums. I remember I liked it, but I don't remember that much about it. Rushmore, I kind of remember more, but it's it's a filmmaker I've been meaning to sort of catch up on. A lot of people chastise me when I say you haven't seen Grand Budapest Hotel. <laughs> That's like <it's> most
2: <laughs> that would be my different. second choice, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah probably. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I'm going to defend you a little bit, though, if you don't mind there, um, because he has a very weird, like, I think very culturally specific style, because I believe you live in Puerto Rico, right? Yeah. Yeah. He has, uh, people have often noted that, like, and this goes back, actually, this ties back to the MCU a little bit, big action films translate for all audiences. Everyone understands Transformers. A giant robot is throwing a building. Who doesn't (laughs) think that's kind of cool, right? That's (laughs) universal. But then you get into things like comedies, and comedy doesn't translate as well across borders or across languages in particular. I actually think Wes Anderson has something like like that going on. I think he has a certain kind of aesthetic. There's like a weird, like United States thrift store aesthetic. There's like a Brooklyn hipster <laughs> thing. There's a few other things like that that don't necessarily describe me, but which I'm like aware of. You know, that that hits me maybe different than it would hit you or hit someone else in another country entirely. So I think there's a degree to which there's a distance there that you know through absolutely no fault of your own that he's not really making films designed to speak to your experiences as much as maybe some some random person in Williamsburg, for example. Um, (laughs) So I think that actually makes sense. He is also, let's just be honest, weird. He's an acquired taste. I honestly, as much as I like Wes Anderson's films overall, he's one of those guys where if someone says they don't get him, I just go, yeah, that makes sense. Fair enough.
1: I actually remember I started seeing Life Aquatic a long time ago. I think it was on cable. And I think I had to leave for some reason. Yeah. And I had to drop halfway through. But I was liking it. I was enjoying it, when I seen it. And I've kind of been meaning to, okay, I should go back and watch this film. But I just haven't gotten to it. But he's very acclaimed. Like I said, it's a filmmaker that I've been planning to dive into at some point.
2: Well, I guess I'll put my thumb on the scale for diving into to that one first. And why not dive into the one that's literally about the sea?
1: Yeah, and it's... Since I saw Rushmore and uh, Royal Tenenbaums, it's like the next one. That was his third film, right? Or at least pretty early
2: on. I think it might have
1: been fourth, but don't quote me on that. I don't have a good sense of the the order of the middle (laughs) ones. (laughs) Okay, so uh, for my first one, here's where my struggle is. I, I had two films from PTA. I had There Will Be Blood at top, and There Will Be Blood will probably be my number one choice, if we're honest. But uh, I'm going to put the spotlight on Phantom Thread, since you said you haven't seen it. And I had it on my list, but I had it lower, and I was planning on, on just leaving it as a honorary mention. mentioned. But since you haven't seen it, I'm going to vouch for it. And, and I'm You're going to sell it. me on it, right? Yeah, now? yeah.
2: Oh. All right, go for uh, it.
1: This is a film I've seen a couple of times. I saw it the first time a couple of years ago. Then I revisited it for a podcast where I talked about it with a friend. And I loved it the first time. But when I saw it the second time, I loved it even more. Because I really appreciated PTA's meticulousness. To everything he does this is the kind of film where you see i I mean just to give a bit of background the film follows reynolds woodcock one of the best names for a character (laughs) played by by daniel day lewis and he's he's like a dressmaker a popular dressmaker that starts a relationship with this woman this poor woman she's from lower means played by bicky cripps and they start this toxic relationship he's used to start relationships with women and then dish them when he gets bored by them but this woman actually challenges him in ways that you don't expect and then you throw in the mix reynolds sister played by leslie mandel who's an overbearing and over controlling woman single woman that lives with him and sort of administers the business and chaperones him through his daily things and The way this relationship, which is not a relationship of two, is a relationship of three people, and the way PTA uh, shows this relationship develop, and the way these three excellent performances, because when I did that podcast with my friend, he asked me, which one is your favorite performance of the three? I I didn't know what to answer, Mm -hmm. because all three are excellent, and you would expect, oh, DDL is is great, Daniel Day-Lewis is so great in everything he does, but Vicky Cripps is excellent but Leslie Manville as well the three performances are excellent and what I was going to say at the beginning was this is one of those films where you see there's purpose in everything you see on screen there's purpose on every angle every shot every single line every inflection of the characters and you see the craft that PTA puts into it but in addition the story is so I I wouldn't know how to define the genre this is a drama but it has very dark humor and you're going to laugh when you see it But it might also make you cry or it's certainly uh, uh, things won't go the way you you expect with this film. I really encourage you to watch it because I'm sure it will surprise you if you like PTA. I don't know if you like PTA. You brought up Magnolia a while ago. I do. Um, I do. Yeah, I'm sold.
2: I was going to watch it pretty soon anyway, but I'm going to move it way, way up, even above Melancholia. uh, (laughs) And I'm going to I'm going to watch it within the next week. I'm promising right here.
1: I vouch for it, definitely. It's the perfect mixture of great craft, great performances, great script. Everything is there on that film. I I really loved it. And it's one of those films that I can't stop thinking about.
2: The thing I'm most intrigued about is when you said you couldn't decide which of the performances were the best. I think that's a really good sign, probably. That shows that the writing is really good, that all the characters are very interdependent, right? And no one just steals the show. That makes me think that it's a really good screenplay in particular.
1: Yeah. And, and I don't know if it's the issue that, you know, we've all seen Daniel Day-Lewis excel at everything. Yeah. So you expect, you expect him to be excellent in everything he does. But Leslie Mamble, I, I don't know if I've seen her in anything else. And Vicky Cripps, she's Pretty much uh, a new uh, or a rising star. So I don't know if it's that thing of expecting something great of DDL as usual and and then be surprised by these two more or less, uh, I don't want to say unknowns, but unknown for me. Or if it's the fact that they were really three great performances. I lean towards that. I, I think they are really three great performances anchored by a great script and great direction. So I think you really should see it and I'm sure you will enjoy it. Excellent. I will absolutely watch it. I, I look forward to your talks. And I will catch up with the ones you mentioned. I, I will try to watch uh, Life Aquatic. At oh,
2: some man. Point. I, I know we both have massive
1: watch lists and a lot to do, and we both <laughs> just made a lot more work for each other in the last hour, didn't we? No, but they are films that are anyway on my watch list. So it's no addition to my watch list. It's All different. right. We'll just we'll just push them both up a little bit. Yeah. We'll, we'll push them up the watch list. Okay. <laughs> so do you have any on our own mention? Anyone that you wanted to mention quickly oh. and say, you know, this film, this film?
2: Uh, this is going to be a weird choice, but um, Edge of Tomorrow, that Tom Cruise action oh, film. Yeah. I just think it's interesting. There are so many threads on our site about what's the best video game movie and why aren't video game movies better. And by video game movie, they mean a movie adapted from a video game. But Edge of Tomorrow is not based on a video game at all, but it is still the best video game movie you'll ever see. <laughs> yeah. It captures the spirit of a video game really well. And I watched it again recently, and it's really good. I mean, I look, it's just Christopher McQuarrie, if he's involved at all. I hope I'm not misremembering, but I'm pretty sure he is. He's been doing the Mission Impossible films for for yes. A while now. Uh, I just love the guy. Actually, was involved with usual suspects way back in the day. So, cannot say enough about Christopher Macquarie. And I feel like this was sort of this kind of got him,
1: you know, where he is today. I think he's the writer. Director is Doug yes. Lyman. Yes. Yeah. But Christopher McQuarrie is one of the writers. Yes.
2: He he shifted over to writing and directing more with the Mission Impossible yes. thing. Um and I just think he has a great sense of action and high concept but doesn't scrimp on it. Um so I know it's a kind of a it seems like a weird thing to draw attention to, but I just think the more we talk about video game films, the more you know, I, I think about uh, films that capture the spirit of a video game, even if they're not based on one. Honestly, most of the others I was going to mention, you already quoted. Whiplash, Social Network, You know, uh, Moneyball would probably be way up there. Oh, yeah. I'm, That's, a big, that was a- I'm a big baseball fan. I wrote a review of Moneyball, which I actually think is one of the most satisfying reviews I've ever written on the site. It just came out beautifully, in my opinion. I'm, I know that sounds very... Uh, <laughs> don't worry, I have, I've written lots of very bad reviews too, I can admit that. Uh, but I really like the one that one came out. Uh, my grandfather was a baseball scout too, so like part of it landed really well. And I just love Aaron Sorkin writing movies based on books that don't seem anything like movies. I just think the degree of difficulty was so high on
1: that that I really appreciate it. Adam Sorkin is like a, a master class in, in screenwriting definitely yes. uh, Moneyball is a, is a film that surprised me because I, I love baseball but I really wasn't expecting the film to be that good it, mm. it really surprised me some of the ones that, again like you said the ones that I included on in the quotes most of them are favorites of mine so those you know Country for All Men Fellowship of the Ring but I, I want to highlight a few that you might have seen me mention in the forum quite a bit there's a 2001 HBO film I love called Conspiracy it's a World War II film based on the 1C conference where Heydrich and Eichmann met with several top-tier Yeah, I did
2: see that. Yes, yes.
1: sort of settle on the final solution. I love that film. That's one of my favorite films ever. Sineadokie, New York with Philip Seymour Mm Hoffman. I love that film. Hard Watch also. I don't know if you've seen it.
2: (laughs) Yes, I'm a pretty big Charlie Kaufman fan, but his films have gotten harder and harder to watch, certainly.
1: (laughs) That's when they started to get really tough. (laughs) No, I I really loved it. Uh, Jordan peele Oss. I really, really loved Us way more than Get Out. Wow. That is, that is,
2: you know, that's an unusual opinion already, I'm guessing.
1: I know, I know. Uh, I recorded a podcast with another friend talking about Us because I really loved it and I've seen it a couple of times already and I really loved it. Another one that I vouch for a lot in the forum is Aniara, a foreign film, a Swedish film, a sci-fi film. is another one of my favorites. I've seen it a couple of times already. Uh, Parasite, First Reform from Paul Schrader. Yeah, good call, good call. Holy Motors, another mind bender that I really loved, from Leo Carax. Kill Bill, Zodiac, anyway, but there are too many films to mention. So as usual, I always go and ask on Twitter for people to share their favorite films, in this case, films from the millennium. And this is what I got. So we're going to talk a bit about what you think about them. Uh, my friend Stu from Sewer Order, he said hot fuss.
2: Yeah, I so, okay. I I like Wright's films, I like Hot Fuzz, Uh, I don't like quite as much Shaun of the Dead. There's something about it. I see it show up on top film list and like countdowns and stuff, so high. So high. I genuinely don't get it. I think it's a great, fun film, but like, I also don't think of it as like an especially deep film, either. I think it's just a fun, straightforward film. It's like yeah. a, but it also has that love letter to cinema thing that you alluded to with Hugo, right? There's a lot of yeah. references. I, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. I must be missing something, because I think it's a very good, fun movie, but I'm genuinely, consistently surprised by how often people put it at the like, top of their lists.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of with you. I love them both. I don't know if they would make my top list, but I, I, I think they're a lot of fun both. My friend Frank Mendoza at FilmBuff 1974, he's from the Silver Screeners podcast, he said Slumdog Millionaire. That's another film that surprised me. I really wasn't expecting to like it that much. I thought it would be one thing and it ended up being another thing in a good way. It really surprised me.
2: Yeah, I saw that in the theaters, and I was really moved by it and really liked it. But this is the thing. You talked about films. I talked about films where we didn't love them right away, but they burrowed into us, and we're still talking about them 10 or 15 years later. Slumdog Millionaire is the exact opposite. I really enjoyed it. I liked it. I'm like, this is really good. I feel moved by it in the moment. I was so drawn in, and I never think about it until someone (laughs) specifically mentions it. I never think about it on my own anymore. I don't know what to think about that, but I think I prefer the first kind of film to the second for whatever reason. And I don't know what it says about Slumdog Millionaire that I don't think about it anymore. Maybe you could say it's all the more impressive that it just managed to pull me in while I was watching it so much. I don't know. I know that Danny Boyle is really talented and it's a really well-made film, but obviously there's there's something missing there in yeah. that, the fact that I never think about it.
1: My friend Sylvie at uh, sly underscore Witch, she said favorite, probably Briggsby Bear. I had never heard of that film until she mentioned it. Uh, I looked for it and I was impressed by the cast. So I thought, you know, I hadn't seen this mentioned. And uh, she vouched for it. So I might give it a watch.
2: I mean, I like Kyle Mooney. I like a lot of the uh, the people involved there, a lot of funny comedians. But uh, I, I mean, I remember seeing a trailer for it and not really understanding what it was. I've, I've never gotten around <laughs> to seeing
1: it. Darren Lundberg from NostalgiaCast, he said, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind.
2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, straightforward there. That's Kaufman before he got too challenging, maybe too (laughs) weird. Very straightforward. And honestly, anyone who's ever gone through a breakup can appreciate that film.
1: Yeah, I need to rewatch it. I remember loving it and enjoying it a lot, but I haven't seen it in probably 15 years, maybe. Tim Dougherty, uh, he said, hey, Carlo, I wrestled with favorite, but I think I'd have to go with Mulholland Drive. But damn if several films aren't right on its heels. Lord of the Rings, Mad Max Fury Road, No Country for Old Men, and Inception. Oh, and Gladiator, Zodiac, and There Will Be Blood.
2: Well, there are a lot of people on the forums who love, love, love Mulholland Drive, people who I love and respect, and because I love and respect them, I won't say too much, (laughs) except, except, and I have said this on the forums, uh, I do appreciate Lynch's talent, and the scene where the character is describing the creature behind the diner. Um, How do I put this nicely? Okay, this is both a compliment and an insult. What we see eventually is so silly looking, and not at all scary. But but in the moment, I was riveted and terrified and on the edge of my seat based on how the scene was shot and the performance, the camera pulling in. So it's almost like, wow, that whole thing was so contrived and fake. But on the other hand, isn't that really impressive? Isn't that great storytelling that he could make me care and be afraid of something so
1: silly? Yeah. I'm a huge fan of Mulholland Drive. So it's, yeah. it's my favorite. It's probably my favorite leash after Eraserhead, uh, another mind bender. But Ashley, she said, Do I have to choose between Roma and Manchester by the Sea? Those are her two choices.
2: Oh, oh. So <sighs> Roma's one of those things I admire more than I like. I don't think I'm ever going to watch it again. I appreciated it. It was fine. I feel like it's one of those things where it succeeds at what it's trying to do, but what it's trying to do is not something I find particularly compelling in the moment, even though I appreciate the artistry on display. Manchester by the Sea, you know, it's it's one of those Oscar bait films, and I feel like it's a little melodramatic, but I did enjoy it. And yeah, it's really just an acting showcase, I think.
1: Yeah, I enjoy both for the reasons that you mentioned. I mean, Roma is gorgeously shot and the direction and cinematography are, are great. And Manchester the Sea has some great performances. So, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, in Film We Trust podcast, Liam said, oh, hard decisions going to cop out and choose both Mulholland Drive and Zodiac. Oh, what was the second one? Uh, Zodiac. David Fincher's Zodiac. Oh,
2: oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, oh, I love it. Love a yeah. great film. And you want to talk about atmosphere and making you afraid of something, in this case, something oh. that is like legitimately scary. Yeah the sense of foreboding in Zodiac is unbearable. It's actually even though I love Zodiac, I've seen it maybe twice but given how good it is, I'm surprised I haven't watched it five or six times and the reason I haven't is because the whole time there is a knot in your chest it is yeah. all foreboding and it just keeps building and keeps going and it doesn't even really release at the end of the film. So it's like why would I sign up for to feel that way for yeah, two and a half yeah. hours right? Like you have to be in the right mood for that
1: There are a couple of scenes. that are The whole film is great but the lake scene, it's mm Uh, unsettling and and the basement scene is intense so yeah definitely probably my second favorite Fincher film
2: I think it's really great it's just not always pleasant to watch and I think one thing I always remember it for is that was the film that made me realize oh wow Jake Gyllenhaal is actually really talented
1: yeah definitely my friend Sean from Review It Yourself he said Inception All
2: right, straightforward. Inception, look, I like like the Nolan films. I don't like the criticisms of them where they say they're soulless or emotionless or whatever. They are what they are. You know, the man has his own style. He wants to tell a certain type of movie. And I think in the long run, history judges those kinds of directors really well. I like the puzzle box thing. I like, you know, the layers. But, but I will say this, over the last decade or so, I have come to agree more with the critics of that particular film. I still think it's a really good film. But the specific criticisms people had about it, I think, are valid because the more I watch it, the more they seem acute.
1: I'm a huge fan of Nolan's first films. I love mm-hmm. Memento. Memento is my favorite of him, and The Prestige. I love. Oh yeah. Um, following would be my number three of him. I really wow. loved it. But the more we go into his filmography, the the mm-hmm. less <laughs> attached I am to his films. And I don't know if he's become this bigger but not necessarily better director. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but uh, Inception is a film that I saw in theaters. I like I liked a lot, but I haven't felt the urge to see again. Mm-hmm. And it, it's even that they had it on cable. I like a lot and I would go past it and say, okay, I, I don't care. I don't feel the urge to watch it again.
2: Yeah, I saw it a few times, and I think that's the right number of times to see it. That's yeah. enough times where you understand everything that's going on intuitively, and you can appreciate what's there, but then you realize there's not much more than that. I think Nolan's films are really pleasant to watch the first time, but they're split, you're right, bet- between the ones that you like more the more you watch them, and the ones you like less the more you watch them. I think this is the ones. one of the ones I like less. And also, this is something I read just the other day, but it actually is a really good point. We explored a man's subconscious in detail and there's nothing sexual in it. I know that sounds like a silly thing to say. I don't. I mean, I know that reads like a joke, but I'm also being dead serious. Like, how it, his films are often described as kind of, I said soulless earlier, some people say. They're also kind of sexless. And I mean that in the, I don't mean you need a sex scene in them. I mean, like, passion, you know, human passion. It's all very abstract. And that we can actually delve into a mind and still not address any of that stuff does kind of show a, a bit of a blind spot in the way he looks at films. And I don't want him to change. I want to be able to still watch these films, but if you're critiquing them, it's a fair critique.
1: Yeah. Bill reads bad reviews at BRBR Bill. He said, there's no way I pick one favorite out of everything, but I absolutely love The Punisher from 2004. Maybe an unpopular opinion, but I don't care. I can still watch it any day of the week.
2: Wow. Yeah. I mean, never made much of an impact on me. And there have obviously been a couple of renditions since. And I think that is mostly regarded as the least of them, frankly. But uh, but I don't know. I don't want to dump on it too much because I, I only saw it the one time many, many years ago. So maybe I'm missing something there. Or maybe it's just one of those fun
1: films that, you know, someone just enjoys. I haven't seen it, so I don't know. David Rosen from the PC Together podcast, he said, "Still Mother," but there's probably a few things from the last few years that would crack into the top ten of the decade episode I did at the end of 2019. Mother, a Darren Aronofsky film. I haven't seen.
2: Yeah, I haven't seen it either, and I've heard enough about it that there's honestly a really good chance I never will. It sounds very, <laughs> well, it just sounds very upsetting, very disturbing, yeah. and uh, maybe a little avant-garde for my taste. I like cinematic experiments, but that one sounds uh, like a bit of a slog. So, uh, yeah. I, like, hey, long watch lists, like we said earlier. There's a lot of other things I could be watching, like Phantom Thread, and that's going to come first.
1: Mel Valentin, at uh, Real Mel Valentin, he said, The assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Oh. Uh, that's a huge blind spot for me.
2: Yeah, um, gorgeous cinematography, but I would say overlong, maybe I'm just exposing myself by calling it kind of boring, but I do think it's kind of boring. Some people might say patient, but if you are willing
1: to enjoy two plus hours of just gorgeous
2: cinematography,
1: you will get that. Deakins. Oh, at, yeah. yeah, Roger says is a, yep. it's a master. Paul at Paul and Nicolai said, In the Mood for Love from Wong Kar Wai. I
2: haven't seen it yet.
1: Oh, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if it, it, it's slow. It's a slow burn. It's a slow drama, but it's pretty good. Jackson Bourne, he said Mad Max Fury Road, which Help. I haven't seen. Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah. <laughs> My friend Reverend Bruce at Eyes Wide Open in 2007, he said The Town.
2: Yeah, that's another one that didn't make much of an impression on me. I was very excited by it. I just feel like there were four or five movies that felt just like that movie. Kind of every scene is overcast and it's in New England and there's like yeah. gruff men involved, like Mystic River or something. You know, just they all sort of blended together for me a little bit. And I just I just I saw the town. It was fine. And then I didn't think about it anymore.
1: It's uh, it's very I've seen it a couple of times because it's also one of those that it's it was on cable a lot. But as opposed to Inception, I did watch it. So it's very formulaic. It follows many of the heist film tropes. But I think it does it well and, and uh, it's fun. It's an entertaining film.
2: I think the thing is that it doesn't do any of those things really well, right? Every, all of it's fine. Yeah. It's not like very often with a heist film you'll have like a clever aspect of the heist film, something very clever about the way they steal the thing or get away or you'll have really good performances or some kind of twist at the end. And I feel like this doesn't yeah. really have any of that. It's all just pretty good. Yeah.
1: My friend Cheesy at Bila says he said "Shun of the Dead, which we were There we go. About. Yep. My friend said shoot the flick. They said train to Busan. Haven't seen that one yet, but I've heard really good. Ones. Oh, I did a zombie episode in October, and that was my number one zombie Ooh, film. Uh, okay. I mean, okay, let me make a, a caveat because when, when we made the list, I challenged my guest to not include any Romero film. Because, oh, that's
2: a good rule. That's a yeah, really good rule.
1: Because my, my favorite is Night of the Living Dead. That's my favorite zombie film. But from the ones that I listed, Train to Busan was my number one. It's you really think. great.
2: That's actually a really good rule because if someone invents a genre, it's almost not fair to include them because when you compare zombie films to to some standard, you have to compare them to the standard he created. So like someone saying, you know, were the Beatles a good rock band? It's like, well, they kind of created the concept of a rock band. So you're measuring (laughs) them against themselves. And it's the same thing with Romero. That's a super smart idea.
1: Definitely. If I had allowed for Romero to be on the list, I would have ended with two Romeros at least. So two, maybe three, because I really like Day of the Dead also. But anyway, my last one, um, My last one is probably my most loyal listener. He's called Tom at Deaf Heaven on Twitter, and he wrote a lot. And I usually abbreviate, but I'm going to indulge him for a bit since he's the best. He's one of my best listeners. And uh, he said he was having a really hard time choosing one. And he said, as I peruse through my collection to determine my top film of the 21st century, I imagine it to be a monumental task. Surely there would be many fantastic films to choose from. Not so much. Sure, there was a plethora of value viewing to entertain even the most pessimistic of cinephiles. But when it comes to movies that I feel stand above and beyond its cinematic brethren, I came up with but 3. Whiplash, Jojo Rabbit, and The Painted Bird, and I would rank them in that order. In a feeble attempt to elevate the lesser known of the trio, I'm going to give my chubby little thumbs up to the Czech Republic's entry to the 92nd Academy Awards in the category of Best International Feature Film. This World War II epic focuses on a young Jewish boy trying to survive a war torn Eastern Europe and the odd and sometimes brutal characters and treatment he endures following the death of his elderly aunt whom he had been left with. The stark but beautiful black and white cinematography only adds to the feelings of abandonment and emptiness of a child thrust into a world of subjugation and cruelty. Wow. So uh, that's one of those films. Remember the challenge I mentioned that I did uh, that I started the year? Uh, He recommended that to me, so I plan to (laughs) watch that one before the end of the year as well. Well, you got a few
2: more weeks, I guess. Um, Boy, those are are tough, right? Like watching a film that you know is going to be heart-wrenching. It's hard to find the right day for that kind of thing. Like, I, it was many years after its release, before I watched Schindler's List, for example, and my wife and I talked about it, and we're like, yeah, we kind of just have to pick a day where we don't have anything else to do afterwards. It's okay to just feel crappy for a while. How do you schedule feeling bad, right? But with some of these
1: films, you know you're doing that. They are definitely, I know, like I said, when you know you're going into something that is going to be a hard watch uh, in that way. You know you have to be like ready for it so yeah uh, but I'll, I'll try to i'll get to it eventually i look forward to hearing your opinion about it so uh chris why don't you tell us what are the plans at the forum what are your plans for the new year uh, New Year's, uh, just wait for it to get warmer so I can
2: play more softball to be perfectly honest. Winter is the absolute worst. I just try <laughs> to like, I try to exercise more and prepare for the season, lose a little weight, you know, be easier on the old knees when I do have to start running around again. That's mostly what it is. As for the site. Um, Well, I mean, look, it's still a hobby. You guys have probably noticed I don't put any ads on it, so site work tends to get put on the back burner a little bit when life gets busy, as it so often does. Uh, But my general goals for 2023 are uh, to finish, whatever finish means, uh, the custom lists, which have been kind of in beta for a couple of years now, and maybe to tie in the day-to-day movie watching and logging experience a little better, a little more like Letterboxd. I have no desire to duplicate Letterboxd. They They do that stuff really well. But maybe a smaller gap between what they do and what we do sometimes just so people don't have to do things in two places if they don't want to, encourage people to log stuff. And if I do that, we can do more fun statistical experiments. That would be really cool. Um, you know, Show people stats on their favorite movies and their movie watching habits and charts and things like that. We're still a small enough site that if someone just says, hey, you know what would be cool? I might just be able to just do it for them, right, as opposed to (laughs) trying to get the attention of IMDb or Letterboxd, and maybe you can't. But without being too specific beyond that, the main goal is always to just give people access to more tools, more stats about their movie experiences. Uh, And I guess, okay, I'll be a little more specific. I would like to make people's profile more of a central place where people can turn their profile into more of a shrine for the movies, actors, and directors they love.
1: I I really like that. And where can people find you on the internet if they wanted to get in touch with you?
2: In this context for movies, probably just uh, movieforums.com, certainly. Uh, But on Twitter, uh, same thing, movieforums. Just really easy to remember. Uh, Just go to the (laughs) site, say hello, check out on Twitter. That's the place I'd want to most point people uh, from here.
1: Chris, it's been great to talk with you again, because this is actually the second time that we talk other than uh, away from the forum. So I really am really glad that you accepted my invitation. And it was a lot of fun to talk with you.
2: Uh, thank you for having me so much. I had a lot of fun, too, and I appreciate you letting me talk so damn much. I know I go on for a while, but uh, I feel passionately about these things, and I could tell you do, too. So uh, I'm not surprised that we went so
1: long. No, not at all. Not at all. We, definitely when we have fun, it doesn't feel like a lot of time. So uh, let, let's hope we can do it again at some point and, and see if we can have you again. Anytime, my friend. Take care. All right. So that was it for the Millennium Loot. Once again, I want to thank Chris for the fun conversation. And if you had fun as well, make sure you drop by moviefarms.com. I've been there for almost two years and the community is great. There's great film discussion and great people to talk with. And as usual, make sure you check out any of the films from our loot and let us know what you think of them. Remember, you can get in touch with us via Twitter at TMML2021 or me personally at TifCGT. If you're listening to us through any platform that allows rating or reviewing, please do so. That's the best way to share the loot and help others find us. Finally, stay tuned for our next episodes to officially close 2022. I know we're in January already, but I want to wrap up with two final episodes before officially kicking in 2023. And as for 2023, trust me, there are a lot of great things coming. There will be some changes in the format of some of our regular episodes to make them more interactive. There is the possibility of a Patreon coming up so you can support the show, and in exchange those that do will get a more inside look and interaction in the show, and many more things. So stay tuned for more details in the next episodes and through our social media. So, after this great conversation about films from the new millennium, one has to wonder in a hundred more years, what films will people be talking about? Will they still be talking about Moonlight? Life Aquatic? Mad Max Fury Road? We'll never know. So, think about that as this new year unfolds. Take care. Happy New
2: Year, Malaysia. Three, nine, eight, seven, six, five.